You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, I don't know how many of you read uh, digital e-readers, but uh, sometimes I read books on a Kindle. And Kindle has a feature that allows you to see what other passages people have highlighted when they have read the same book that you're reading. And uh, it's, it's kind of a voyeuristic pleasure, I get, looking at that, seeing, you know, what people thought was important when they were reading this text. And But last year, Amazon released some statistics that were kind of interesting. They told us which books were highlighted the most. And at the top of the list was the Bible, and then Steve Jobs' biography, and then Hunger Games, believe it or not. Uh, and they told us the passage in all books that was underlined more than any other passage. And it stood out so much, it was underlined almost twice as much as any other highlight. And that was a passage in Catching Fire, which is the second in the trilogy, the Hunger Games trilogy. And so I thought I would just read it to you and see if you could tell why this is so significant for people. It's it's pretty brief. It says this, because sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. Now, it's, that's, it's, there's not a lot there. Uh, let me read it again. Uh, because sometimes things happen to people, and they're not equipped to deal with them. So I've asked myself, what does this tell us about who we are in our culture today? I think maybe it tells us something about our insecurities. That somehow, deep down inside, we're just not sure we can do what we need to do Sometimes in order to be who we need to be. You know, God is calling Abraham uh, to bless him so that he can be a blessing. But before he does that, what God knows is he's going to need to secure Abraham's insecurities. And he does that in two ways. He gives Abram two signs, the stars and a flaming torch. I want to look at those signs with you today. I think each of them answers a question that Abram asks the Lord. If you've been following along with the story, you might notice that this is the first time God and Abram actually have a conversation, and it happens because Abram asks two questions. And these are my words, but here's how I would paraphrase Abram's questions. The first one is, how can I be what I am not? Number one. And the second question is, how can I do what I cannot uh, number two, see, so notice the two questions. The first is about identity, how can I be? And the second is about impact, how can I do? And so then he gets these two remarkable signs because he wants to secure his insecurities by securing his identity, that be, and securing his impact, that do. So I want to look at these two signs with you, but what I want to do, I'm going to do that fairly quickly because I want you to see that it's not just these two uh, signs that matter, it's the order of them. It's the relationship between your be and your do that really matters. That's our focus tonight. But first, let's look at the be sign, uh, B-E. Look, the Lord says, at the stars. This is a, by the way, you may want to open up your Bible again if you, if you closed it back up to Genesis chapter 15. Ryan did a great job. He read all those names. You go to grad school just to learn how to read those names, by the way. That's what seminary is all about. Um, Genesis 15 is on page 10, but if you look at verse 2, you see the first of these two questions that Abram asks. And, uh, I would paraphrase that first question is, how can I be what I am not? 
God's telling him, you're blessed. But if I'm Abraham, I'm going, I don't know. I'm not so sure that I am blessed. I mean, things have gone really hard. I'm really old. I don't have a child. I've just been in a battle. <laughs> Convince me this is true because that's not how I see myself. If you want to know how Abram sees himself, read the question in his own words. Verse 2, he says, I continue childless. Literally, the Hebrew says, I'm walking stripped. That's the Hebrew word there, stripped. By the way, that Hebrew word is the same word for the word for cave in the Old Testament. Why? Because a cave is stripped. It's empty. It's hollow. That's what he's saying. This is how he sees himself. God, I don't know. You're telling me I'm going to be the father of many nations. I don't have a single child I can count right now. I am empty like a cave. I'm a, I'm a big zero with the edges rubbed off. I'm just a, an empty suit. This is how I see myself. I get nothing here. And the guy says, well, that may be the way you see you, but that's not the way I see you. Let me tell you how I see you. Would you just open that tent flap there, brother, and step out into the night and look up at the stars? And what I want you to do is count those stars because every one is going to be like a child that you have. Every single one. One, two, three. And he's going like, can you count them? See, because God, God sees a different identity in Abram. He doesn't see him like a cave. He sees him like a father. You are the father. By the way, his name's going to be changed by the Lord shortly from Abram to Abraham. So what we know him as, and it means father of multitudes. The apostle Paul calls him the father of many nations. This is your identity, God says. And if you want to know, so the point is, if you want to know your identity, Abraham, you don't look into the mirror. You don't look into your circumstances. You don't, through some perverse act of deep introspection, look in deep down inside somewhere and see what do I really like and what don't I like? I don't know. No. If you want to know who you really are, then what you do is you look to the stars. You look to the heavens and you let me tell you who you are. You let me give you your identity. I created you. I redeemed you. I've given you this mission in life. Take your identity from me. Be who you are. Be who you are in my grace. You're blessed. Now, Abram receives that, but he asks a second question in verse 8. This, I think, is uh, a due question, and uh, he gets a sign. Again, look, the Lord says, at a flaming torch. Not the stars here, but the flaming torch. Abram has just asked the question, in my own words, how can I do what I can't? God, I know you're asking me to bless many nations. How can I do that? How can I do that? I'm standing here in this land you're telling me is going to be the place of great blessing, but I don't even have a home here. I am homeless. You're asking me to bless nations, but there are nations all around me. These people are not my people. How I don't know how to bless. How could I? Now, what impact does God expect? Well, he says, I want you to look at the torch. I want you to look at the torch. And this, he, notice how few instructions he gives Abram. He doesn't tell him to do a lot. He goes, would you go get some animals for me? He tells him the kind of animals. And from there, without any instruction, Abraham just carries on with an exercise. He actually cuts these animals in half. It's gross. It's, this, is, this is an awkward moment right here in, in Genesis 15. He cuts these animals in half. He takes their body parts and he divides them, creating an, an aisle. Now, what in the world is he doing? Why is he doing that? Well, uh, as soon as God tells him to get these, uh, the cow and the ram and the birds and everything, he knows what's coming next. Because in the ancient Near East, uh, when two kings wanted to enter into a treaty with one another, they would get these kinds of animals and they would cut them in half 
And uh, they would make a covenant. They would cut a covenant is the language that they would use in ancient times. And the two kings would uh, make a promise to one another, uh, the vassal king and the, and the great king. They'd promise certain services to perform for one another. And then, you know, side by side, they would walk through these dismembered animals. And in, in essence, they would be saying to their gods, whoever they were, may the same thing be done to us and worse if we do not do what we promise to do this day. And I love the way one of our elders uh, said it. He said, oh, when, when Abram hears about these animals, he just knows what's coming next. He just knows God is going to ask me to do something. God's going to ask me to make a promise to do something. And he's going to, it's such a serious promise that if I don't do what he asked me to do, it's going to cost me my life. I see this coming. And it's a dreadful moment. And in fact, it gets darker and darker. And it is terrifying for some reason, this vision that he has. But here's the surprise. God doesn't ask Abram to walk with him up that aisle. In fact, God walks himself. See, that's what the uh, flaming torch is. The flaming torch and the smoking pot uh, represent God. This is in the Old Testament. God will manifest himself in what we call a theophany. And he does it usually with fire and smoke, like on Mount Sinai, right? Or in the wilderness, remember what leads the Israelites through the wilderness? It's a pillar of smoke and a cloud and a, and a, and a flaming tower. And, the, and so here God is is himself showing up to make a promise to Abraham that he guarantees unilaterally, unconditionally. And God just wants him to watch. He goes, you know what, Abraham, you just watch this because what you are going to do is going to be possible because of what I am going to do. And I promise you that even if it costs me my life, I will keep this promise to bless you and to bless the world through you. Wow. That is security. So if you look to the stars to get your identity from me, God says, I want you to look to the torch and expect great impact from me. Do who you are, who I say you are, and because of, because of what I have done. The stars and the torch. So, what you see in these two signs is that it's God who gives Abram his security. Be, be, and do. But as I said, now I want to loop back because I told you that what's important is not just these two signs, but the order of them. It's first be, and only then do. It's first be, and then do. Now, this passage might have sounded a little bit familiar if you've been following Jesus for some time and you've read the New Testament. Look back at verse 6. Does this echo uh, anything uh, you, you're, you've read? Verse 6. <clears throat> this happens to be a favorite verse of the Apostle Paul. Here we read in Genesis 15:6, And he, that's Abram, believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him, or accounted it to him, or credited it to him as righteousness. Simply by believing, not doing anything, but simply by believing, the writer is telling us, God goes, you're good. I got you. My promise for you. That's grace. This is why it's so important to the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 4, Paul is all over this passage, and he's asking his readers, let me tell you, let me ask you, what do you think? Does his being come before his doing, or his doing come before his being? And the answer is, of course, be first and then do. First 
He believes and he's credited as righteousness, just as an act of grace, and then he gets circumcised. We haven't got to this part yet in, in Genesis, but it's coming. Abraham will be circumcised, and that's his doing. It's his response to who he is, all right? But Paul says, look, be very clear. When you get the order of those two words wrong, when it's due to be, that is salvation by works, to use the theological language. It's only when you get be to do right that you have grace. And that's where the good news is. You see, that's why this is so important to the Apostle Paul. I have a new friend named Caesar Kalinowski, and he is helping me to see the importance of these three words. By the way, I'm rather proud tonight that the big idea has only three words and six letters. You don't even need a pencil to take this one home with you tonight, B to do. And uh, I'm going to give you an example of what this looks like in my life. In my work, for example, is where most of us spend a lot of our time is in our work. And for me, my work has to do largely with getting ready for Sunday and writing a sermon. And I hesitate to go into this because I don't want you to be all conscious of the fact that I'm preaching and that I struggle with preaching. Not so much delivering sermons, but writing sermons is really hard for me. And I think I'm discovering why. I think I'm bringing a do-to-be mindset to my work. Think about it for a second. If I bring a do-to-be mindset to my work, here's what happens. I'm in my study, and I'm thinking, if I do everything that a good preacher will do and work really hard on this and grunt it out. I get all great illustrations and a beautiful glowing oracle that rhymes and has an acrostic. That's the best. Then, then I will be good. I will be a great preacher. And I want to tell you that's what I want so badly like you wouldn't believe. I, I, I want to be Earl Palmer, by the way. That's what I, I want to be Earl That's why I'm here. You guys can help me with that. I want to be Earl Palmer. I want to be Bruce Larson. I want to be Bob Munger. I want to be David Cowie. I want to be Lori Wheeler. I want to be Ryan Church. I want to be Tim Keller. I want to be Andy Stanley. I want to be a great preacher. I want to be in the pantheon. See, I think that if I do something up here on the chancel in front of you, I might be something. I'm so desperate to impress you. I want to impress my kids. I want to impress my wife. I want to impress God. The hardest one to impress is myself, but that's I'm after that as well, you see. Man, but I want to tell you, it's such a trap. Here's why. Here's why it's a problem. Make sure you catch this part. If I'm living with do-to-be in my preaching, a couple things happen. First of all, it gets in the way of my work because what we really want to have happen here is when you walk out the door, you shouldn't be saying to yourself, what a great preacher. You should be saying, what a great savior. See, that's the point of this whole thing. I can get in my way. And that's true for your work, by the way, as well. But the other thing is, if I'm due to be, when you walk out of here, you can destroy the whole thing. All you have to do is take 15 seconds and send me an email and say, George, your sermon tonight stunk. And if, if my identity is hooked into my preaching of the sermon, what have you just done to me? You've destroyed me. I've lost myself. Do I really want to give you that kind of power? No offense. No, <laughs> that's not your place. No, that's radical insecurity. God says, you look to me for that, George. You look to me for that. You let me tell you you're okay because I love you. So let me, let me flip it around and just, I'm preaching to myself here, but, but here's what happened this week. I said, well, what, okay, so I'm reading Abraham. What would happen if I actually shifted my mindset to a be to do mindset in preaching, in my work? So here's what I came up with. I, I said, well, well, who am I? 
Who, am, who, does, who, who does God say that I am? Well, the, what came to my mind was herald. I'm a herald. In a couple places in the Bible, it says, uh, uh, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And I thought, that's me. That's what I'm, that's who I am. I'm a herald. And so I have beautiful feet. And I, and I look at my feet and I go, these feet are not beautiful. They are not. Um, actually, when I look at my feet right now, I see plantar fasciitis, you know, so that's a problem. But when I look up at the stars, and I look to the heavens, and I allow God to tell me what kind of feet I have, even though I can't see it myself. He says, you have beautiful feet. I realize I do not have to impress you. I am already impressive. I just am, because I'm loved by God in that way. I'm impressive. I've got beautiful feet. So all I need to do is come up here on a Sunday evening and look at you and say, hey, friends, let's gather together around Jesus Christ. And isn't it wonderful what good news we have? See, I'm a person who now has deep inside of me good news. Just gets got to come out. And I don't need glowing illustrations and iambic pentameter in my rhetoric in order to, to do that. I just need to live out of my identity. So you get the point. You can do the same thing in your work. I want to tell you, uh, living be to do is the only way to share hope. It's the only way to share hope. It runs all the way through the Bible, by the way. Would you just give me a minute to show you this? In Genesis chapter 1, this is what hope looks like. Before God gives a do, he gives a be. He says, you're like me. That's, that's a be. You are like me. And then and only then does he say, be fruitful and multiply. He says, here's your identity. You're like me, and I'm the creator, so you're very creative. So then now he says, now go be creative. Do, do that. Be fruitful and multiply. That's hope in at creation. And by the way, in chapter 3, the serpent challenges us at just exactly that point. The serpent says, listen to this. He says, oh, I know why the Lord doesn't want you to eat of that tree. It's because he knows that if you do that, you will be like him. That's the lie. Oh, my gosh. They're already like him. You can't be any more like God than you already are. You're in his perfect image. You're in his likeness. And you don't have to do anything. But the lie is you've got to do something in order to be someone. Hope at creation. Then hope at redemption. Think of the nation of Israel. We know that there are ten big do's or do nots, right? The ten commandments. Well, do you know that those are in Genesis, Exodus chapter 20 and Exodus 19, the end of the chapter, God's trying to convince Israel of who they are. So I want to tell you what your identity. You're the royal priesthood, he says. I carry you on eagle's wings. That's who you are. Now, if you know that, these are the things that you can do and not do out of that. Redemption. And then Jesus himself. Before Jesus can do anything in his earthly ministry, do a single thing for the Father, what happens? Do you remember? He's baptized, comes out of the water. There's a, a voice from heaven that... Uh, Holy Spirit comes like a dove, and it is spoken over Jesus, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That's B. All of Jesus' do comes first from his B. And now he can do, he can live out of that identity. By the way, again, he goes out of the wilderness, and the evil one wants to challenge that very assertion. Three times there are these temptations, and they're all due to be temptations. You do this, you might be that. Do this, you might be that. Do this, you might be that. Jesus goes, I don't need any of that because I know who I am. I'm a beloved son with whom God right now is well pleased. And then think of the disciples, those who write the New Testament for us, every single one of them. They do not start off by saying, you guys should do or stop doing all this stuff. No, in every case, all the epistles begin with a statement of who you are. 
Let me just tell you who you are. And once you get that, then you begin to be invited into what you can do, new possibilities because of the new identity. And great impact follows from that. So tonight, if you are feeling insecure, I wonder if it's because you, like me, are living with a do-to-be mindset. Let's come back to Hunger Games for a second. Sometimes things happen to people and they are not equipped to deal with them. A professor at Villanova named Mark Schiffman writes about this quote, and he says, It's easy to see why The Hunger Games is the novel of this generation. The trilogy depicts adolescents rigorously trained by adults for desperate but meaningless life-or-death competitions. It's, it's true, right? If you've seen or read, it's, Schiffman continues, its dark emptiness resonates with students' worry that they are all honed up with no place to go. Afflicted with a desperate compulsion for competitive advantage, they rack up majors, minors, certificates, credentials, and internships to keep them in the running for what they feel to be an ever more elusive success. They're driven by fear. They clothe themselves in an armor of achievement that they hope will protect them against uncertainties of the job market, of course, but also deeper uncertainties about their status, their identities, their self-worth. They're working steadily assignment by assignment toward gaining more control over an uncertain future. What's Schiffman saying? He's saying, you may be a straight-A student right now. Don't even know what an A-minus looks like. And it might just be, though, it might just be that rather than making yourself more secure, you're making yourself less secure. Because it's becoming an identity for you. And many of us here in this room have grown up with parents who would never would have said this, but because mom's got a high-powered job and dad is just the most popular person on the block, we feel that if we want to be someone, we've got to do something, X, Y, and Z. And we are drowning in performance anxiety. And it's not just our students. You know, they're here, but it's all of us. All of us are hooking our identity into our work, into our relationships, into our marriage, into our money, into our children, into our health. But be careful because as we read and underline, things happen. And if your identity is there, you will not be equipped to face those things when they do. The stars and the torch. Your identity and impact are secure because they are gifts from God. Contrary to what your culture tells you, your identity is not in your gender, in your ethnicity, in your education, your orientation, your career, your politics, your body weight, your car, your playlist, or your online followers. There's nothing more truly you than your identity in Christ. There's nothing more authentic that you can do than to live out of that identity. So I was thinking about this this week, and I said, so what is my identity? What what is that? Um, And if you want to noodle on that this week, just reflect on the metaphors that are in the New Testament for the church. Let me just give you a few of them to give you a sample of this. New Testament tells us we're the bride of Christ. It means we're beautiful to him. New Testament tells us we're the flock of Jesus. It means we're, we're being cared for by him. New Testament tells us we're the family of God. It means we have brothers and sisters in one another. New Testament tells us we're the house of God. It means God makes his home in us. New Testament tells us we're a royal priesthood. It means we offer grace to others and to the world. 
New Testament tells us we are the body of Christ, which in some bizarre way that I hardly understand, it means that Jesus himself continues his mission through us today, through you today. Now, when you live out of that identity, you start to do what beautiful people do, what cared for people do, what people with great families do, what people at home with God do, what people with grace do, and ultimately what Jesus does. It's, if that's who you already are, that's what you will want to do. Be blessed to be a blessing. Let me close with a story. I think this past week, uh, Wednesday night, I saw Abram's torch at a retirement party. Let me tell you a story. I ride my bike to work uh, every day. And um, when I am in my do-to-be mindset, I am um, rushing, and I don't pay attention to much because i got a full calendar. And that's what you do, by the way, when you're in your do-to-be mindset. Why? Because you've got to do, 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 do more, because then you can be, 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 be more. But I happen to oftentimes get stopped at a red light, and over the years I've noticed a um, sort of a rundown bike shop uh, at that intersection. And I've um, made an effort to get to know the owner of that shop. In fact, my small, my whole small group, I'm in a network of couples, young couples, small groups. And we've tried to get to know this guy because he's gone through a lot. Business has been hard. He's lost his wife to cancer in the last couple of years. And um, just last week, I was two weeks ago, I was in his shop and he told me that he was having going out of business sale because the owner of the property is going to demolish the building. Now, this is a guy who started this business in 1969 for 46 years. And so my small group, we were talking, what can we do to make life a little easier for this guy who's now going to be out of work? And we got this idea. So I went in and I said, hey, John, would you let um, a group of friends and me throw you a retirement party? And at first he thought we were joking. And I said, no, I'm sure we'd really like to, we'd like to have you over at our home, throw a retirement party for you. And he said, Okay. Um, what do you, what kind of food do you like? He goes, well, I, I really love salads. And I find that hard to believe. But I said, okay. So, and he said, actually, I really love Mexican food. So, so we thought, we, how would we do that? Well, we did a fiesta salad. And we had, we got these couples groups together. Uh, we made a bunch of gifts. Someone painted a painting of his shop. We put banners up all over the place. His favorite food, a ton of food was there. And it was a great night. I tell you, when, when he was loading all the gifts in the back of his car, the last one to leave, pull his car out of the driveway. I could just tell he had been deeply touched. And I said to him, I said, John, when the, when the shop's not there, I don't, I don't know, how am I going to see you? And he said, well, I got a birthday coming up. <laughs> and I said, oh, great, John. Well, tell me, when's your birthday? And, and listen to this, what he said. He said, I'll tell you, anytime you all get together, that's his birthday. He, he, we, so I just want to tell you, there was a flicker of impact. It's because a group of people started to believe, take it really seriously, God has, the God of the universe has committed himself to using them as conduits of his blessing. They went and did what they did because they, they thought this was who they really were, and it worked. God blessed this man in a powerful way. Sometimes things happen to people, but Jesus always equips us to deal with them. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this gives us so much joy to look to heaven and know who we are and that, it's, that we're blessed. In your eyes, we couldn't be more righteous than we already are tonight. 
gives us such joy to know that our lives really matter, that uh, before us goes this flaming torch of your promise, that you are committed to our living meaningful lives of impact in the world, that we, even we, can and will be a blessing to countless people as we respond to your invitation. And we pray that we'll do that individually and teach us how to do that corporately, because this is a great city and you've located us here and called us here, blessed us here so that we can be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.